Hey everyone, and welcome to The Rational Republican, a podcast where we look at complex issues facing us here in Oregon and around the nation. We'll try to address issues from a nonpartisan perspective and view our disagreements through a lens of respect rather than tribalism or divisiveness. I'm James Ball. This is Nick Perlosky. Hey listeners, how we doing? Today's podcast is brought to you by ProLift Doors of Portland. ProLift is your one-stop shop for residential and small commercial garage doors from openers, springs, and rollers to full reinstalls. They offer same-day service on all garage door repairs with no extra charge for evenings or weekends. Serving West Portland out to Hillsboro, call today and set up your free estimate at 503-558-6349 or at proliftdoors.com slash Portland. Again, that's 503-558-6349 or proliftdoors.com slash Portland. On this episode of the podcast, we have uh, Captain Greg Woldridge. He said not to call him captain, but I did anyway. Uh, he is a 27-year Navy veteran, Navy pilot, commander of the Blue Angels, uh, prolific public speaker, and four years ago ran for governor of Oregon on the Republican ticket. So, Greg, welcome to the show. Thanks, James. Glad to be here. That's what we always said in the blues. Absolutely. Well, uh, so that was the the very, very short version of your resume. Do you want to give us another like one to two minutes of who you are and how you got to Oregon and got involved in politics? Gladly, gladly, James. You know, I uh, I got to serve 27, like you said, in the Navy. Then I flew for FedEx, a great company for about 13 years. Uh, got out of flying because of some health related issues and uh, got a second chance at life there, which was really spectacular. Um, I had a cardiac arrest, so uh, likely would have died had I not had somebody to give me a CPR. Um, but anyway, that's that's one of my many second chances in life and not for necessarily for life, but getting things done. So I got to do all those great, wonderful things, you know, a lot of people say, well, it must have been pretty cool. And well, it was just an opportunity, right? And I, I seized it. Um, retired from FedEx because of uh, the medical stuff. And then moved moved from uh, uh, Pensacola, Florida to, to Portland in about 2005. Uh, loved it out here. What a beautiful place this is. And it's the most beautiful state I've ever seen. Uh, the diversity of the topography is uh, fabulous. So I decided to stay. Uh, really got involved with stuff. Um, found some great guys to hang out with, yeah. and uh, and uh, you know, and a little refuge in the in the in the quagmire of, of uh, the left sided politics of Oregon. You know, and uh, got fired up. Uh, uh, started doing public speaking, which was a great opportunity as well. Uh, travel around the country and sometimes out. Uh, still doing that uh, here and there, and uh, just just started uh, realized a dream about two and a half years that I've had for about two and a half years, about six or eight months ago. With uh, finally got IMAX Corporation and Bad Robot with JJ Abrams Company to finance and promote and distribute a, a theatrical length documentary about the Blue Angels and. Oh, I leave wow. on I leave on Saturday to go back to Pensacola to do some of that. Um, so that is a great opportunity. But let's go back to politics. So in 2018, <laughs> I had a couple of my my buddies come up to me and say, "Hey, we uh, we uh, uh, we we got a we got a plan for you. We want you to 
you know, we're having lunch and they say, come to lunch. And I'm sitting at lunch and they said, uh, we want you to run a pot farm for us now that it's legal. <laughs> I immediately knew my leg was being pulled, right? Uh, but then they, then they uh, started uh, yakking about what Oregon needs and what I might have to offer. Um, and I, I saw I took a lot of introspect, introspective thoughts and thinking to, to come to the conclusion that uh, you never know what you're going to be able to do unless you try. Sure. And I saw the complete lack of leadership. Um, there was probably one politician that I trusted in Oregon, and that was Dennis Richardson. So, uh, you know, I wanted to restore that in, in the environment. So I, I gave it a shot. Uh, started out pretty, pretty well. I got to, uh, won the Dorchester polls, you know, I thought, wow, we're moving here. Sure. Uh, but then it started getting uh, complicated. I got in late. Um, I'm probably giving you more information than you wanted, but I got in late and, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, Phil Knight had already given his, his purse strings to, uh, uh um, Mueller, right? Yeah. New, new dealer. Yeah. And uh, so I, I got a, a late, late start and that hurts you in what you can get mon- monetarily and about recognition. So but we gave it a good shot and uh, didn't win the primary. Wanted to, I think because I was different from Newt, I think had I been a, won the, had I won the primary, I think we would have had a better chance of beating Kate Brown. Just had a better message. So, so that's I my, that's I, I was just going to say a second ago, you had mentioned you found some great guys to hang out with here in Portland, and it, it wasn't clear on the audio, but on the video, you kind of made a circle as if you were insinuating that James and I are the great guys that you were able to hang out with. <laughs> right. I thank you for that. Your check is certainly in the mail. We'll make sure that we, <laughs> we comp you for that there. Um, but I, I, I definitely, honestly, curious to, to to at least start about the talk about the politics stuff because your, I mean, your life is a study in leadership as the the captain of the Blue Angels, the gentleman, and I, I'm sure, ladies. Who, who are able to fly within inches of each other in these going Mach 1, Mach 1.5, Mach 2, it did some of these incredible speeds at low altitudes. Um, you better than probably any person in the state know what it means to, to be a true leadership. And we've, we're here, we're recording this in June 29th to 2022. We're, we're all three on this podcast hoping that there's a red wave that's coming to Oregon. We hope that Christine Drazen wins the governorship. We hope Lori Doremer wins her seat in Congress. We hope Republicans are able to take back the state Senate. We hope hopefully Republicans are able to take back the state house. Would you ever consider taking the leadership skills that you honed and the lessons that you learned from 2018 and running for Congress, running against Ron Wyden, running to be Christine Drazen's successor in four years or eight years? I think not. I, um, by that time I'll, they'll be, they'll say, Hey, he's, he's kind of Biden like, isn't he? And I, I don't think no, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> never. No, I, I'm not going to run again. I, you know, I enjoy politics. And I love talking about it and uh, influencing it in any way I possibly can. But uh, I won't be a candidate again. Okay. Uh, but, but, you know what? What I, what I what I'll tell you something about the Blue Angels. What really made leadership tick there was the culture. It was a culture based on gratitude. You you've heard me say already. Glad to be here. Right. We said that every day on that team so that the culture, the foundation, the basis of, of what we, that culture of excellence and caring was based on a sense of gratitude, being able to fly with the people we got to fly with more than anything else, the team, uh, the enlisted folks and the officers. Um, but 
if you say that foundation is concrete, you got to run rebar through there. And the rebar that held that all together was uh, trust. So trust was crucial. You know, you, you mentioned, Nick, about people flying real close to me and close together. And uh, it's all built on trust. I, I saw a, a clip of how close my wingmen were to me. And I said, hey, you guys are way too close. You can't be that close to me. How can you do that? I said, we trust you, boss. And that boss was the, the moniker that they gave every flight leader. So they said, we trust you, boss. And that's what I wanted to bring to Oregon was trust. You know, I, I think the people in government in Oregon, you know, we, we vilify them at times uh, down in Salem. But and I'm going back to my my stuff, you know, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. But, you know, we vilify them, but it wasn't because it's not because they're bad people. It's because they're poorly led and they're not inspired, you know, to do the right thing and, and to come forward and make Oregon the great state that it should be. And they're not inspired. So I wasn't one of those clean house people. I was, you know, get everybody up. No, I was, uh, let's, let's lead them. Let's give them expectations. Let's say, teach them, you know, and, 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 and mentor and, and get them moving in the right direction. You know, well, I'm just, when I was in the army, uh, I was a junior officer and just, you always have kind of a, a dirtbag soldier is someone who is, um, I mean, that's what we call it, you know, someone who doesn't do what they're supposed to do, who, who, whatever. And it, it was kind of had an epiphany at one point NCO pulled me aside and, and was like, you know, nobody here was drafted. Everyone here at some point signed on the dotted line saying, you know, I volunteer to do this. And if they're not performing or they're got a bad attitude or they're not doing what they say they're going to do, there's some reason for that. And the reason is not they're forced to be there. And I think that if you look at that, it, I think that that applies to the legislature as well. Those, everyone there is, it took a lot of work to get there. And so if they are not performing, you're absolutely right. It's, it's a lack of leadership. It's, it's a lack of, um, some sort of cohesion and not a lack of will. It's not a, it's not a bad, not a reflection of poor character. It's well, sometimes it is, it can name names later, but <laughs> uh, it's, it, it's leadership. It's, it's huge. And I, I think that military leadership in particular is not very well appreciated in just civilian life at all. I was reading your bio on the way over here. You, you commanded a, a Navy base. You were right. the, the head cheese of a of a military installation, basically a small city. And then when you came yeah. back, when I mean, you talked about retiring from FedEx, but you went back to flying planes. You know, that's that's got to be a culture shock going from, I mean, essentially, yeah, mayor of a of a small not not even a mayor, just running thousands yeah. of people to yeah. uh, being in charge of one aircraft. It was so much fun. I uh, had a great staff there, but it, it is different being a mayor because everything that happened on that base came back to me, you know, mm -hmm. good, bad, or, 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 you know, wonderful. It came back to me. It wasn't like the mayor could just say, well, it's their fault. You know, no, it all, the buck stopped where I was. Um, and it was a great base. It was one of the largest in the Navy. And because the team was so good, we got awarded with the presidential Installation of Excellence Award for the year we were there and uh, across the world. So um, that was a, a wonderful opportunity. But but leadership, to go back to what you were saying, you know, you, you've got to step into that position with respect for the people that are around you. And, mm -hmm. and you have to you have to parlay that all, all the way to every level. You can't just 
you know, deal with your department heads or your division heads or your, uh, you know, your um, secretaries and all that stuff. You, you've got to get down and talk to the, the troops. Right. And you saw that, James, in the, in the army. You have to talk to the troops. You have to know them. You have they have to know that you care about them. Um, now, that doesn't mean you don't discipline because that's what the morale of the entire organization goes on. And that's the morale in, in Salem has been so low for so many years that uh, because there's no discipline and there's no set, you know, goals that are that are being set to help every Oregonian. Again, I'm on my stump. Sorry. I love to digress into that <laughs> you stuff. You sure you're not but, running for something again in the future? Because I know I'm running away from things, but I'm not running for anything. <laughs> I um I was curious to ask you something about uh, we're we're kind of touching on leadership right now, and I wanted to ask you a question about kind of how you get there. And I I've got my father-in-law to thank for this. He was in the uh, the Air Force's equivalent of Top Gun. He flew F fours in Vietnam, and is obviously an incredible incredible resource for information about anything aviation would do, which is a passion of mine. Um, he had said that one of the things, and so for 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 general listeners, if you're driving a car on a street, sometimes it'll pull to the left, sometimes it'll pull to the right. And you can fix that as, as you've got a steering wheel. That's what the steering wheel's for. Uh, in an airplane, you can be pulled to the left or pulled to the right, but you can also be pulled up and down depending on what your altitude is, what the pressure's like, what the day is like, anything. And you adjust that with something called the trim tab. You can trim the trim things out so that you are able to have the, fly, the airplane fly just steady at level and you don't even have to ha- have your hand on the stick. It can just fly on its own. And that's typically how pilots fly. You trim out any pressure going up or down so that the, you're just flying at whatever flight level you're at. You're just good to go. You're just the, the flight, the, the plane is going to fly itself. My father-in-law had heard that the blues will actually, instead of trimming themselves into, into not needing anything, they'll, you'll actually trim, trim the nose back. So you've got to pull back on the stick with about 20 pounds of pressure and in a way be able to fly a little bit more precise because you're constantly engaged. There's never a second which you're not doing something. You're constantly pulling back on the stick in addition to driving, you know, however else you need to. And my question is a, first off, is that true? And B, what are some of the other things as you kind of like rose up the ladder that either lessons that you had to unlearn or tinker with or uh, mess around with on the edges a little bit to go from a normal, typical CEO, you know, something like that to a really a person who is a true leader. Yeah, yeah. I think, Nick, that's a great story. And I, I love trimming out the the uh, attempts of the airplane to take control of you. I, I've got a little adage that I talk about in my keynote, and that is you fly the airplane, don't let it fly you, right? You've got the skill, you've got the talent. And when I failed at the ship landing, landing on an aircraft carrier the first time, I failed. I talked to you, know, I told you I got a lot of second chances. Uh, I got a new instructor and he said, Waldridge, I want to tell you two things. First of all, you know, you can do this and I know you can do this, but I want you to remember you fly the airplane. Don't let it fly you. So you put that in all facets of life. Right. Um, so yes. Um, trimming out however you get those inputs that the, the weather, the, the things that come into your field of view when you're leading an organization, however you get those under control, you, you have to control it. Right. And when you do get something that's abnormal, you don't overreact to it. Another adage I have is hold what you got, don't flinch, right? Because if you flinch, a lot of times you overreact, you're causing a greater problem than what you need to sit down and analyze and get control of. Blah, blah, blah. Okay, the Blue Angels, back to that. Yeah, the, the, older, the older airplanes, they actually, uh, they trimmed the nose down. 
uh, on the F-18, when we, we took those, I was like the second leader to fly the, the Hornet. And now the Super Hornet came in last year, but it's all fly by wire. So what they did was, and one of the reasons they did it is because when you rolled upside down, uh, the, the controls were wishy-washy. You couldn't hold a nice, steady, straight and level flight upside down because the, uh, the flight controls, the computers were saying, <laughs> what are you trying to do here? You know, this isn't normal. <laughs> All right. You can pull through inverted position, but not just stay inverted. Right. So the guys that were making the transition to the F-18 from the A-4, they went back to Patuxent River, Navy test pilot school and said, how about you guys figure out something for us? You know, and what they came up with, you're going to die about this. But so from up underneath the instrument panel, they they rigged four, and I call them screen door springs because that's what they look like, four screen door springs that came back to a little bracket to attach to the front of the control stick and put 40 pounds of pressure pulling forward on the stick at all times, right? So when you roll, when you rolled inverted with even fly by wire, if you just eased off the stick a little bit, Boom, solid as a rock, inverted, and it just it worked great. So that's what they have now. That's what they had, uh, you know, starting in the in the like 1988 when we first got the uh, F-18. And uh, now even the new Hornets, they have this this uh, 40, 40 to 45 pounds of forward stick for the whole hour you're flying that flight demonstration. And I'll add one more thing. Next week, I'm going down to Pensacola to, to film with our, our production staff, our director and cinematographer and a bunch of other folks. But they're selecting new pilots for next year's team, three new pilots. And they have to go all the and they have all the what they call finalists there. And they all have to sit in a chair and hold their arm steady with 45 pounds of forward pressure for like 35 or 40 minutes just to see that they can handle that kind of have that kind of arm strength. Right. So it's kind of fun. <laughs> it's, it's a real weird thing, but uh, it works. Hey, <laughs> can't argue with the results. That's yeah, quite a bit. That's that's a that's a hard for that long. I didn't know that. Yeah, my experience with those folks was sitting on the ground while they were shooting bad guys, uh, <laughs> talking to the radio, talking on the radio to them. Yeah, but, yeah. I I had uh, I got to sit next to uh, Mad Dog Mattis at the at a fundraiser about a month and a half ago. He and I both got a chance to speak. Um, and he just always said, boy, I, I love you guys, you know, cause he was a ground founder, right? And he would call in close air support, call in air guys. And he said, you know, when I heard you guys coming, I was just whistling for joy, you know, to, yeah, we're going to get some support now. So I hear you, James. I was, I was at that, uh, fundraiser, but, yeah. um, yeah, it, it was always, um, it was always, always interesting because you, we, the army, for whatever reason, I think we would we would make sure that we had close air support on, on speed dial. Basically we Absolutely. made sure that someone was available. I think the Marines were a little more fly by the seat of your pants kind of guys where they would call in and see if someone was available, if they got in trouble. Whereas we always had someone like, you know, sitting on the runway waiting for us. So we, we could have close air support within, you know, 15, or, 20 minutes if we needed it. Or even airborne loiter, loitering out there uh, away from the uh, FIBA, FIBA or edge of the battle area. Yeah. 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 Well, out the the, well, so a lot of times we would have uh close air support on station and they would, you know, they're, they got their afterburners on and stuff and they only have, you you probably know better than me, but you know, a couple minutes, 30 minutes yeah. of fuel when they're, when they're going that fast. Yeah. And there was a, a fuel tanker that would just circle Afghanistan. 
at yep. 40,000 feet or whatever. And so they would be, we'd be on the radio with them and they'd be like, all right, Hey, I got to go refuel. And they just go straight up and <laughs> up to 40,000. Right. Yeah. Probably 30,000 gas down and come back. You know? <laughs> it, was, yeah. it was high enough that we couldn't see it. So they would just go straight up, go refuel and they'd be back in five minutes and finish the fight. So yeah. good times. Oh, that's good. Thanks well, for what, so, what you did on the ground. That's that's the hard thing. We were up there in air conditioning and you know, just flying around having a good time. <laughs> well, I was the radio guy, so that's not, you know, that's the the infantrymen who were really doing all the hard work. I was just walking behind them with the radio. But uh, I was going to say, Greg, when you're up there, I'm assuming that you just have a loop of the, the Top Gun theme just playing the whole time. But that's actually the next question I wanted to ask about is the movie. It just it's actually it's been out for about a month now, the new Top Gun movie. And uh, I know one of the reasons that the, the, the Blue Angels are around is to, to drive recruitment to say, hey, we're, you know, look at how incredible the fighting force that we've got. You know, we have the best pilots in the world. And I know that after at least the first movie, the the applications to be naval aviators absolutely skyrocketed. That movie was yeah. the best piece of recruitment that the Navy could ever put together to try to get qualified airmen. And I'd be curious, A, if you've seen the new Top Gun B, if you have any thoughts, any scenes where you're like, this was incredible, this was a great bit of flying, or this would never, ever happen in real. I'm sure when they they steal the F-14 from the Russians or whoever the bad guy is supposed to be at the end, is that might be a little little bit out there. But um, any any thoughts on the movie and any kind of hope that you've got that this might have another a second generation of uh, new naval aviation recruits? Yeah, you bet. I, I saw it about 10 days ago with uh, with uh, Bill Schaub and Jack Shattuck and Don Bourgeois, good friends of mine. Yeah, we went out and sat and watched it, and uh, it was it was electrifying. It was fantastic. So we get out and we have to debrief it, you know. And they say, "Okay, well, how much of it do you think was real?" I said, "And I'd estimate about seventy percent. There's some CGI in there, not much. I know the guys that flew the airplanes. See, you see Tom Cruise and all the all his uh, other Top Gun guys, right? They're all in the yeah. back seat of a two seater and they've rigged these cameras so perfectly that, it, and the guys, the actors act, Oh, they're stressing, you know, uh, you know, like they're actually <laughs> flying the airplane. They're only, they're actually in the back seat. I know a lot of the guys that flew in the front seat. Uh, one of them was a former blue angel and he knew how to fly low to the ground. He was pretty skilled at that, but yeah, it was, uh, uh, it was a great storyline, you know, probably, uh, that's part of the 30% that wasn't so real, but, uh, but it was a good storyline. <laughs> Uh, and the action was great, and they flew some. They got some incredible photography. And, and if I might digress for just a second, our IMAX is using the same Sony Venice cameras, uh, the same IMAX quality cameras that uh, Top Gun Maverick used, and and, we're, and ours is going to be all real. The characters are all real, real people, and the flying is all real, and it's going to be flying never seen before from the blue. So. Sorry, I had to take advantage of that. Uh, oh, and it'll be out. It'll be out I've already next, got my popcorn ready. I'm excited to go see this next movie. Summer. Yeah, it'll be out next summer. Exactly. But it'll be better. You know, I told my staff, my crew, I said, uh, our, our, our movie is going to be better than Top Gun because it's real and it's going to have better. We're going to have better uh, photography. Uh, anyway, yeah, it was a good, you know, on uh, the original Top Gun, the recruiters, after it came out, they set up tables outside of the theaters, you know, because people wanted to sign <laughs> up. It was just, Amazing. Uh, yeah, this one's a little more sophisticated. You can go online or go down to the recruiter's office, but it's going to have a great effect. Um, and it's already turned a billion dollars. You know, it was like a $200 million budget and it's already turned a billion and it'll keep going. So it's a great movie. It's great for naval aviation. 
And naval aviation is great for America because it teaches us values and discipline and precision um, and and teamwork and working with people and uh, taking care of your people. You know, so all those things are good for America. Blah, blah, blah. You know, sorry. And American <laughs> exceptionalism that I believe in. And uh, I get chided for that occasionally. But, um, yeah, it was great. It's great. And, and there's another movie coming out in the fall about a uh, heroic Navy pilot in Korea, Jesse Brown, the first black naval aviator uh, who was shot down, couldn't get out of his plane. He survived the crash. And his wingman, uh, played by Glenn Powell, who's in my production crew group, uh, he uh, he crash lands and, and tries to get him out of the airplane. It's a compelling story. It's called Devotion. It'll be out this fall. And then ours will follow that. So we're going to have three three epic Navy, naval aviation movies. And uh, so I'm excited. Plus Glenn Powell is a longhorn, just like me. So I'm always excited. I know he's a younger guy and I think relatively newish to cinema, but I'm really excited if you'll pardon the pundits to watch his career take off. I talked to him. He said, I've had a, you know, he said, when I was a kid, I had blue angel posters in my room, you know, so he loves the blues and uh, that makes his linkage to this. uh, Perfect. Very cool. (laughs) Well, kind of shifting back to Oregon politics yeah. uh, now, you know, Kate Brown's almost limited term limited out, you know, in the last six months of her her reign of terror. Uh, what do you what would uh, Governor Wooldridge have done differently these last three and a half, four ish years? Well, what do you think? I'll have to I'll, I'll just take a shotgun approach on that. Uh, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, first, I would have. Uh, talk to forestry people about what we need to do to uh, to optimize our great natural resources and not turn it over to bureaucrats that uh, think they know better than the guys that have to keep that a vibrant part of Oregon, right? Same with fisheries and same with the, the you know, the problems in the Columbia and things like that. Traffic, I would have, I would have attacked traffic, how we're going to get that under control because traffic has a great impact on uh, on logistics and logistics have a great impact on the amount of business you can do as a state. Um, so I would have done that uh, education. You know, uh, we got to focus on the three R's. Doggone it! I mean, you know, we're hmm. as uh, many of the school moms are uh, looking at now. Too much of the uh, education that's being inputted to our young people is is not good for them. So I wouldn't have allowed that. I, I just would not have allowed it, you know, and I, there are a lot of things I, w- I would have just raised red flags about. And I, I made the joke, if I'd been elected, I probably there, there would have been like three or four impeachment attempts or whatever you do to a governor to get him out of office. But, uh, it would have been different. Um, I think I could have won the trust of Oregonians. And right now, you know, Portland would not have burned. Guaranteed. I, we would have had National Guard in there, whatever it takes to stop that nonsense. Right. Yeah. Well, tell us the thing that kind of that's drove me insane that especially at the start of the coronavirus pandemic, as the all the Black Lives Matter, all the protests were going on, you would see Kate Brown and Ted Conference would be kind of at each other's throats at different press conferences or issuing contradictory orders or different. And it's just like how I mean, kind of to our point earlier in the conversation, how do you get to have that much of a dearth of leadership where these two very powerful executives who I you know, we can argue about how good they are at their jobs or how competent, anything like that. But th- I mean, this is just blocking and tackling type stuff. And we 
And we were one of the last states in the union to reopen. We were one of the last states in the union to have mask mandates. And I, to your, this is always my thing. But I, my, I, I grew up in Austin, University of Texas. My dad still lives down there. Every time I fly home, he's he drives me back to the airport. He says, "Oh, there's the new Tesla factory. There's the new, you know, Oracle's world headquarters. There's Facebook." And I get out on 26 to go see James. I get on I-5 to go down south to Salem or go see a, a Beaver football game, you know, whatever. Drive out on 84, go out to see Real Pretty Hood River. I've never seen new industries show up here. I've never seen new businesses show up here. I've never seen a company IPO. We had, I mean, Dutch Brothers last year, and even the stock is starting to tank on that. That's the, I think the lack of leadership, it sounds like that you're talking about, where it's just like, we just, we have an incredible state that we do absolutely nothing with. Yeah, so I think corporations are punished. punished. They're punished in Oregon, right? They're, they're looked at as deep pockets, folks. That uh, if we screw up in how we manage the state financially, let's just go punish the uh, the corporations because they got the money, right? Uh, and that's and so corporations, why would you want to come here? You know why? Why would you want to come? And and we don't do a good job of educating our kids. Uh, Mm-hmm. High school, you know, graduation rates are so poor and they aren't skilled in, in, uh, in the trades either. And so those are some of the things I would have focused on, you know, the trades training um, and, and enticing companies to come here because of the ready, the ready workforce, you know, job ready workforce. It's here. Um, sure, we get we've had a pretty good influx of people over the last 15 years. Um, but I think that's going to, that's easing up. A lot of my friends have moved to Idaho. So I think they're moving out of the city. Too. Um, mm-hmm. I can, I still own a condo in downtown Portland and it feel like the only place in the country where property prices, property values have gone down is in downtown Portland uh, because it's such a mess down there. I mean, you could, you could talk about what the reasoning is. I think it's because of the homelessness and street violence and crime and it's just not fun to live down there anymore. And so property values are, are reflecting that. But it just, just shows how, how the city of Portland has really fallen under uh, Democratic leadership. Big D Democratic leadership. We, <laughs> we like small D Democratic leadership. But Well, well uh, that's what I was going to ask you, James. You know, you talked about homelessness and crime and uh, demonstrations and looting and all that kind of stuff. It all comes right back to... Leadership. Who's leading this outfit, right? Who, yeah. Who's in charge? I mean, and why? Why are you letting this happen to 99.8% of, of the Portlandians and Oregonians? Why are you letting it happen to them? You know, yeah. what's going on? It's so frustrating. Um, and what, yeah, what blows on mind? I was, was really disappointed in this last uh, midterm. Nick and I did a whole podcast kind of going over the, the results, but the nonpartisan races, the county commissions, the the metro races, it's all the same people. The, there was no change. I was expecting this red wave and people were frustrated and people are tired of it. And they're not. The majority of Portlanders, uh, they look at the city of Portland and they say, you know what? I want more of this. And it just blew my mind that that's, that that's the case. But um, even talking to people who were working for uh, Vadim or Renee Gonzalez, who were running against Joanne Hardesty for, for Portland City Council, um, they were saying uh, Hardesty's support was coming from the West Hills. So the people who actually have to deal with the problems she's causing are, yeah. are not voting for her. The people who are voting for her are the people in the West Hills who don't have to deal with any of it. And they think they're being woke by voting for the, for the black woman. 
Yeah, they're just sipping their tea, right? And going, oh, the injustices we, you know, th- those people have experienced, you know, so we got to do something. Well, no, you know, there's some great people in government, and but Joanne Hardesty should not be one of them. Um, it's it, uh, it's so frustrating, huh? Just actively. And, thank you for running, James. By the way, oh, thanks thank for running. You're here. Yeah. Thanks, yeah. I, 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 Jamie. A couple bucks. I appreciate that. So, thank you. well, you. You deserve more. I wish we could have done it. Well, yeah. We, well, we, and uh, oh, Greg, a little bit on that question is uh, you, you've just despite the, a lot of uh, sound bits to the contrary, you've stated that you're not interested in pursuing public office again, which I certainly respect. Um, do you see either any uh, kind of ready made candidates, candidates that you do view as true leaders, either coming from the House, the Senate, you know, the legislature somewhere or, you know, small business owners, different things like that, small town mayors, different things like that? Or are there different philosophies that you kind of hope you start to see more of folks espousing? I mean, like determination, precision, trust, and you just, you, you're going to hope that we start to see a little bit more of that here coming up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I like Stan Pulliam, you know, I, I think he's, you know, and, and Laurie Dreamer, I love her, you know, her husband was a playmate of my son in central California when I ran mm-hmm. that base, you know, so <laughs> Okay. But yes, there are some really good people. Um, and uh, the, the daunting thing is that, you know, no matter how good you are, it's hard to get by the uh, public employee machine. Right. Isn't that the hardest thing? You, you, your eyes twinkle with this opportunity, right? And you go, whoa, this could work. But you're not hearing the wheels grinding on the other side of, of the unions. The machine. So that was I this was obviously this was before that I had met you. So I fully apologize, but I had worked on Newt's campaign actually after the primary. And we would, you know, things had looked good and polling had looked good and everything. And it was just in the last two weeks that Kate Brown and the the kind of ask me folks and, uh, you know, d- different individuals like that were just, they just were pounding the ground and they had signs started showing up everywhere and GOTV efforts started turning up everywhere. And what should have been a really great race of really qualified candidate against Kate Brown, who's got a track record of being, you know, absolutely terrible at her job. Newt lost that by the same percentage that Bud Pierce had lost by two years before. And we thought we thought we had so much hope and just all of a sudden yeah. it's just, you know, yeah, yeah. That was, I think I may have told this story on the podcast before, but I was arguing with somebody online about uh, campaign finance and they were talking about how the, the big timber was ruining Oregon and the anti-environmentalists and blah, blah, blah. And so I, I asked, like I, I badgered him. I was like, what, give me an example. Give me an example. So he posted a link to an Oregonian article from like 2010, which talked about the, uh, you know, donations from timber and how they were buying politicians and blah, blah, blah. And, $200,000 to multiple politicians, but the total contribution of $200,000. And I was like, hey, dude, hey, dude, public employee unions gave five times that much to Shamia Fagan for one election, one candidate, one election. And you are telling me that the problem is timber companies who gave 20% of that to multiple candidates over multiple years. It's just the, the scale of the problem. You know, you're, I think back 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago, there was a big, you know, timber push to to get some of these. I mean, you talk about was it Tom McCall that had had the the fish in the in the in the uh, Columbia River or Willamette? I, I'm getting my history mixed up, but uh, there were there were some significant environmental issues 
you know, a generation ago. And it's still kind of people on the left seem to think that, that that's still going on, that a lot of those influences are still there, but it's not, you just, just follow the money and it's, it's public employee unions that are, that bought and owned this state. So. Absolutely. I agree. But there are good, there are great Republicans out there. I mean, I've seen some guys run, well, who, who is it? Rob Cornelius ran for CD one, right? I thought if anybody is qualified to be a congressman, that's the guy, right? And he's still lost by the registration margin. So people, and, and but that's that's a good thing about this year and in 2024. I think some of those that are registered on in the Democrats, uh, I think, are going. Wow, the country is really off track. You got to hope that, right? And the state is really off track. And so hopefully. You know, we'll get some a little bit of a little bit of balance again. If we if we can get a Republican governor or take one of the houses of of the legislature, I think that would go a long way to giving restoring some some hope to to this state. And, you know, at least putting the brakes on all of the bad policy decisions that have been made over the last 30 or 40 years. I mean, you, you talked about traffic. I mean, what a disaster. And I've been sitting in on some of the meetings where they're talking about the Interstate 5 uh, bridge replacement. So right now we have three lanes in each direction, and they're talking about spending $4 billion to replace a six-lane bridge with a six-lane bridge. They want to replace it with exactly the same thing they've got. I mean, there are, I think, somebody eight to 10 hours of stopping traffic every day going across that bridge between early morning and the morning and afternoon. Like, we need more capacity on that bridge and the, the locally preferred alternative that they're talking about right now, three lanes in each direction, exactly the same thing that we've got. Oh, it's, you know, it's adding a max line and there's a couple of dedicated transit lines, but as far as like actual vehicle car traffic, same capacity we've got now. It is absolutely and absurd that they want to spend $4 billion on that. There are a lot of, a lot of controversial remedies, right? Uh, somebody wanted to do a tunnel under the river. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Uh, but our additional bridges or the West side bypass, you know, things that they're controversial, but, and, and, and tolls to tolls, but you take, you, you apply tolls and then our, our streets that aren't told are going to be so full of cars and it's going to be worse. You know, they talk about equity, but every time you make driving more expensive, it hurts lowest income Oregonians. Yeah, it does. And that's where, that's where, business is and that's where money is made you know that's where most people are employed is in private private sector and small businesses yeah and we're, we're killing them and then we're and we're pushing corporations out of town for a lot of reasons like columbia moving out of downtown because of the violence right and well intel putting putting a factory in ohio instead of here locally yeah right that's a right. they taxes are just it's it's everything that the city and the state can be doing wrong they are doing wrong they're working all these things that we're talking about on this on this episode they are going through and doing the opposite of and it's just like my god like this is not this should not be difficult concepts to to figure out here folks but at the same time here we are and things have just kind of gone downhill 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 so hopefully hopefully we'll we'll have some turnaround this um this november we got a couple more months um, Greg, I'd be curious to know, uh, I, I feel like it's just like it's common tropes for us Oregonians to kind of dock on Californians and get mad that they're moving up here and driving the prices up and clogging up the streets and everything. It's kind of a common trope for conservatives to dunk on 
Hollywood and the and the liberals and all the, all this kind of stuff. You've actually got frontline experience, and I'm just I'm curious if um, if you found any just kind of like real goofy personalities out there, or if if JJ Abrams and the folks you're working with are as dedicated to to telling the story that you that you're hoping to tell. Yeah, they're they're extremely professional, um, very competitive. Uh, uh, takes a long time for them to let loose of funds. Now, what their cultural proclivities are, you know, I think the folks that uh, that are conservative in Hollywood are 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 just laying low. You know, they're there. They're good family values people. I mean, I worked with two or three of them uh, last week, and good folks. Is that the question you had, Nick, about? about in Hollywood or about Californians or. Yeah, no, I, I was just kind of curious for your thoughts on if there's any, if, if there's any truth to the truth to those kind of um, suppositions or if uh, at the end of the day, I mean, everybody's got their own kind of political beliefs, but they're there to do a job and there. It, it sounds like they're, they're interested in performing ably the job and telling an incredibly good story. Yeah, they are. They are. One of the problems with Hollywood, as you know, is the, it's so easy to get a microphone if you if your name's in lights, right? I mean, and oh, yeah. you are being irresponsible by doing that, but that's just the way those folks sometimes are. But you know, the, there is a lot of uh, real intensity to get this story about the blues told properly and accurately um, and excitingly. And I'm just uh, I'm jazzed about it. I think uh, it's going to be epic. It's going to be a, a theatrical as well as a 40 minute museum piece. You know that people. Yeah, that they can draw in for an IMAX presentation. It's going to be good. And, and the people are good. They're very, very hardworking people in, in Hollywood. That, you know, they'll work a 12-hour day and not even uh, bat an eye. Um, and I've, I've been with them when they've done that many times. So good people. Good. Awesome. Well, at some point pretty soon, we're going to convert from a politics podcast to a movie podcast. So I'll bug in and get Glenn Powell and J.J. Abrams emails and talk sure. about Star Wars and all the all the fun or yeah. Star Trek, all the, all the fun, good stuff they've been a part of. But uh, that, uh, that sounds like a ton of great stories there. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to highlight the, the leader of the blues this year, who is a he's from Fargo, North Dakota. He's, okay. uh, he's an American. He's an American. Uh, you know, he's a John Wayne type. He's going to be so good. It's going to be so much fun. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> We are running about out of time. So, Greg, one of the things we like to ask all of our guests at the end of the podcast is, who is your favorite Republican, if you have one? Yeah, I, I'm, I, you know, I lived in Springfield, Illinois, a lot as a child and a, a high school student. Uh, um, of course, Abraham Lincoln, is, you know, is my, my hero of all heroes. Uh, but let's go more contemporary. We move up the line and you get Ronald Reagan, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, gee whiz. I, I just saw something as when he flashed me a, an email with his picture and something he had said, I thought that is a true American. Um, then I try to move into a, a, a local and a more uh, time relevant uh, heroes uh, in the Republican side. Well, you know, I, I think, you know, and, and, and this is, this is a death knell for all politicians. When I say I like somebody, <laughs> <laughs> they never get to go anywhere. So, but uh, you know, I like uh, Ron DeSantis. I think he's a great leader. He's a naval officer. Yeah, uh, you know <laughs> that, right? Uh, and he's doing a great job in Florida. And he he uh, exhibits the, the the talents and the skills and the values that I I certainly uh, respect and a leader. So I think 
modern day right now, I'd say I, I really like Ron DeSantis. Love it. Well, yeah. you might, yeah. might be, might be president DeSantis in a, a couple of years. We'll see. Oh yeah. We gotta, we gotta, gotta look at that closely and, and see if we can make that happen. Sure thing. There we go. First Oregon, then the whole country, baby. Let's go. That's it. Well, <laughs> thanks again for coming on this, on this show. This has been a lot of fun to talk with you and, uh, Appreciate you taking the time. I know normally you uh, charge for this kind of access. So no, no, no. This is passion. This is some passion here, and and I appreciate you letting me voice my opinions. I know there's guys uh, that are much more qualified. Alan Alley, some of our other friends, right, that are much more qualified to discuss these issues than I. But um, I have the passion, and uh, I want to see us uh, do well as a state. So we're. We're going to give Alan a, a frequent flyer card for uh, coming on the podcast a couple of times. So I love, love, love that man. All right. Thanks for listening to the Rational Republican Podcast. Your hosts are James Ball and Nick Perlosky. The show today is brought to you by ProLift Garage Doors of Portland, serving the greater Portland metro area for all your garage door installation and repair needs. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can email us at james at jamesaball.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can find our episodes at jamesaball.com, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts.